thank you everybody for all your wonderful presentations. I think uh, I can speak for myself and the planning team that we are quite impressed that you guys have done this uh, in the space of maybe just one morning. So thank you very much for all your hard work and I think we deserve a round of applause for being able to complete all these uh, problem statements and answers to all these statements. So um, I think we have heard a lot on all these different issues and this is probably just a culmination of what we have done for the past one and a half days, basically talking about different issues that uh, encompass the four themes of our Young Singaporeans Conference 2022, uh, online space and me uh, social media, uh, climate change and environment, in inclusivity, diversity and well-being, as well as life trajectories and priorities. So uh, I think the two ministers, we are very uh, honoured to have them here today with us to listen to all our suggestions as well as to be here to answer any burning questions you have. So maybe I would first like to invite uh, the two ministers here to maybe give their thoughts on what they have uh, heard so far. So maybe we start with DPM. Thanks very much. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Very good to be here. And thank you all for all the deliberations that you had and the presentations just now. Uh, I, I, unfortunately, we couldn't engage each of you table by table because I think if we had done that, I don't think we will be able to end this session in, on time. So we had to breeze through quite quickly just to listen to all of you. But I want to assure you that all the ideas and suggestions that you have put out are useful for our own internal deliberations, especially as we, as many of you know, are embarking on our own review now of government policies, of what we might want to do to strengthen our social compact and take Singapore forward. That's part of the Forward Singapore exercise that we are currently embarking on. So the suggestions, ideas, feedback that you have will certainly feed into that process. Uh, we will take all of these suggestions seriously and consider how we can uh, incorporate them into our uh, review and into policy updates. Uh, if I may summarize very broadly, just listening you know, for the first time to all that you have presented. No, no one has prepped me for this. So just listening, and I just came back on the plane ride from um, KL, so still a little bit groggy. So just listening to all of you for the first time. Uh, if I may summarize, I think some broad themes uh, come out and, and, and stand out for me. One is just the idea of having opportunities for everyone in Singapore, how we might provide opportunities for people throughout their lives. That's certainly very important. The second is how we might, how can we provide more assurance and uh, for, for everyone, assurance for their well-being, assurance for their the dreams, the passion, the kind of life that they would like to have in Singapore so that everyone feels included, no one is left out, and there is a greater sense of assurance that each person can get the kind of life they hope to achieve in Singapore. Third is around sustainability, and quite a number of you spoke about that, uh, that we know that this is a major issue that facing the world, facing Singapore, and we need to get more sustainable lifestyles through our society. How can we go about doing that? And finally, how would we strengthen the sense of solidarity? So even as we 
talk about different issues, there are different views, how can we strengthen that sense of unity, solidarity as Singaporeans and move forward together. And so these broad themes that, that all of you have been wrestling with, thinking about, in fact, are similar themes that we are discussing in our Forward Singapore review and conversations. But underpinning all of that, underpinning all of these ideas also, I think very importantly, and many of you touched on it as well, is a sense of responsibility. Because to achieve more opportunities, more well-being or assurance, more sustainability, more solidarity, if everyone thinks that someone else is responsible, it's the government that's responsible only, or it's companies that's responsible, it's the other person that's responsible, and it's not me, you know, I, I just want every, all the good things in life to be given to me on a silver platter. Well, I'm, I'm afraid it will not work out like that. Because responsibility means all of us have to do our part. And that all of us refers to the government, it refers to employers and companies, it refers to community, it refers to individuals. And understanding that we all have our part to play and then having a sense of what is our expectation of each entity, who does what, right? That's also important because if your expectation is like that, but the, you know, the person or the entity does not meet that full expectation, you will be disappointed. So what is our expectation of the government? What more should the government do? How much more should the government spend? And if the government were to spend more, how should the government fund all of these additional spending? Who will pay the additional taxes? What is your expectation of employers? Employers ought to do more, but how should we get them to do more? And if the employers say, well, if you are asking me to do all these additional obligations, but look, Hong Kong, Dubai, they don't require me to do that, and I decide to move, then how should we respond? And how do we get employers to embrace those obligations? What is our expectation of community groups? What is our expectation of individuals? And how do we grapple with these sorts of issues, reset expectations, and also have an understanding of our duties and obligations to one another? So all of that, when we talk about all of these things, expectations, duties, responsibilities, in order to achieve our shared goals, that's really what our social compact is about. And that's why we think it's timely as we enter an unknown future, a more challenging future. Uh, we, we should have a conversation about how we can refresh and strengthen our social compact with an un a better understanding of what each entity in society can do different or can do more of. Uh, in having this conversation, and in fact, in the course of deliberating over many of your ideas, I'm sure you would encounter this, that there will be different views. It's almost impossible to say that you can get consensus 100% on anything, right? There will be different views, and part of this is a process of how we find consensus amidst diversity. In some instances, it's easier to form consensus and we can move faster, but in other instances, it probably will be harder to find consensus and we sometimes may have to agree to disagree. We sometimes may have to 
say for this particular issue, it's very hard to find consensus. So rather than going at it over and over again and getting everyone heated up, let's set it aside for the time being because who knows, attitudes, mindsets might well change a few years down the road. So there is, there is also a need for judgment, wisdom on what we can do, how fast we can move. And that final process, I would say, also requires everyone to not be too cynical and skeptical about things, right? Because very often, very often, the things that we have consensus over and we move, then the cynical reaction is, well, the government has already decided that's why the engagement is a little bit of a show. You've already decided to do. And then that's the cynical reaction. And the things that are difficult to move, then the cynical reaction is, well, you see, what was the point of the engagement? You didn't move anyway. There was no change. Right? So, so we really need to understand that in many of these things that we are discussing, it's not about can do or cannot do. It's about for every action, there is, an, uh, there is a reaction. There are costs, there are consequences. What is the right balance? If there is consensus, good to do, everyone agrees, I'm sure we would all do. And, and there are some ideas that all of you had which I, I see are in that category and we would want to take them up and we would want to pursue quickly and get them done. And there are some ideas which also, amongst many of the things you, you surface, which I think will have some strong reactions from different stakeholders, could be community groups, could be employers, they may not like it, and therefore requires further engagements, further discussions. So there may be costs, there may be consequences. Um, companies may decide this is too much, I therefore don't want to stay here. Or community groups may feel this is too much change and we don't think we can uh, accept such a major move. And so when we have these sorts of issues, the wiser thing to do is to continue the engagement, continue the uh, deliberations, think about ways where we can uh, compromise, listen to each other's views, find accommodation or compromise and find common ground so that we can gradually move forward, if possible. And if it's not possible, we may have to say, let's set these issues aside, let's perhaps examine them at a later time. So that's our, if anything, that describes the Singapore way, right? The Singapore way is basically this. It's a partnership amongst all of us in Singapore, always looking for common ground, always looking for how we can improve and make things better year by year, generation by generation. So I, I want you to, I hope you will um, feel confident and hopeful that this process, processes like these are important. Uh, they help to strengthen our social compact. They do make a difference and your contributions, your participation can help build a better Singapore. And I would finally end by saying beyond this session that you have, if you feel engaged, if you feel energized and you feel like you want to contribute beyond these today's session, please do so. It shouldn't just end here. Right? There are many other platforms that we are developing as part of our Forward Singapore movement where you can participate in. 
Uh, you, there could we, beyond just having engagement sessions like this or the short deliberation sessions like this that, that you just had, we are thinking of, for example, having more citizens panel where, where you actually spend a lot more time, not just one day, a lot more time wrestling with a particular issue, engaging different stakeholders, not just in a small room like that, but going out to engage different stakeholders, listening, hearing to their views, and then understanding that, wow, so much different views. How do I find the balance? What is the right balance? What is the right policy to make? And then if you say, I need resources, where can I get those resources from? Right? So actually diving into specifics and then um, formulating more informed and more detailed policy uh, solutions beyond a very quick afternoon session like this. I think that's a useful platform. You could certainly participate in more citizens' panels that we are um, eventually going to roll out. Or you could also have platforms which we are thinking about where we would empower people like yourselves to not only think about ideas and solutions, but get involved in doing something. So we empower you to provide a solution, we give you resources and we give you the ability to actually roll out, take action and deliver solutions. So those are, that's another platform which we are trying to develop along the way. So there will be other occasions and I would just want to encourage you to continue to participate actively in all of these platforms because your views matter and all of you can help shape a better Singapore together. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, DPM. So, a lot of engagement and I think that's how society negotiates their social compact along the way, right, as we develop. So, uh, maybe uh, SMS Janu would like to also weigh in on all you have heard this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, DPM, for the summary and the synthesis of much of the content. I think I'm not going to delve so much into the content that was presented at the various pitches and at the various tables. Maybe I might comment a little bit on how it felt, you know. Uh, not, not quite a vibe check, but I'll try my best. Uh, this being a, a young audience, clearly uh, quite a lot of passion and drive uh, from the various presenters around the different ideas. Some of the, 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 um, those values and feelings that came across was a very strong sense of social justice across many of the pitches. This idea that whatever it is we do, we do have to take everyone along with us, bring, bring the whole of our society to a certain landing point. Um, very laudable, very admirable, but I'm sure you understand quite a lot of hard work, and I think some of the, the stuff that you had presented as a mitigation or considerations reflected an understanding of just how hard some of those ideas would be to implement. So a strong sense of so social justice tempered with a good dose of reality came across. There was quite a lot of idealism aspirations, perhaps thinking not just way out of the box, but outside of the room that the box is in. Um, that is necessary, I think, from a young audience. Um, if, the, if young Singaporeans aren't willing and interested in pushing the envelope, um, that's not going to shift our agenda forward. Uh, and we do need a sense of idealism and aspiration from all of us, but particularly from the young. So I think that was very heartening um, to see. Um, the The other thing that I picked up, I don't know, I was trying to look and see what was on the badge that all of you were wearing, and it was clear that some of you were uh, 
not presenting within your comfort zone or within your, your domain expertise. And I thought that was great uh, because all of these issues that you bring up, they're not limited to a single domain, a single industry, a single issue. It affects each of these uh, matters that you've brought up affect all of us. And we do need to then have all the voices, not just of the, 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 the domain expertise, but the people who are affected by all of these things. Uh, so I thought that was very heartening to see people who were really uh, uh, talking about something that they had a passion for, not necessarily an industry skill set for. And I think that is an important voice to bring to the conversation. And while you're doing that, as you take the work forward, one thing to think about are what are the voices not in the room. And I think this is one of the last points that DPM alluded to, that if you are going to take these issues forward, you will have to find ways to engage with stakeholders that are not easily represented at platforms and fora like this. The last point that I'd make, um, you know that uh, you'll have passion for these issues. Uh, when an issue, and any of these issues, if it were within the remit of government fully, with all its resources and its staffing and intention, it takes us a significant amount of time to move on any of these types of issues. I mean, social change, policy change, these types of shifts take a lot of time and effort. And so if you are interested uh, in these issues, please persist. Uh, please, you know, don't just say, I've, I've, I've done my part, I've said my piece, and then hasta la vista, baby, I'm out of here. Uh, you know, you, you, you persist. Uh, go, go at it with some degree of resilience and recognize that it does take time to achieve some of these things. Uh, we do have platforms uh, in the youth space, uh, but you can create your own and we can bring together communities of people who are interested in this. And I think if you can find your way to doing that, uh, perhaps the last point will, 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 will evolve and emerge over time, uh, which I always try to remind youth audiences about, uh, which is that when you speak with this great deal of idealism and aspiration and passion from a youth perspective, uh, one of the things that's easily forgotten is that you're not going to be a youth forever. Uh, and so sometimes it's worth reminding ourselves of what would I like to see when I become, you know, the bald middle-aged guy on stage? Uh, what is the kind of Singapore that I would like to bring my kids up? Not necessarily just what is a Singapore that's nice for me as a, as a young person. So worth bringing some, some balance into the debate on that as well. I'm going to stop there and I look forward to all your questions and comments and thank you very much. Thank you very much, SMS Janil. So yes, definitely we have a lot of cross-cutting issues, right? And we see from the presentations that actually they do uh, overlap a little in terms of the themes that we have really clearly delineated out. So um, if I may, I would like to invite any questions from the floor. But just for administrative purposes, please go straight to the mic uh, located there on the left of the room uh, to speak out your question. Uh, before that, please introduce yourself, uh, your name and your organization. Uh, before you start uh, asking your question. It can also be related to whatever you have just presented to uh, the two ministers. So, uh, you know, you can have a more deeper engagement with that issue that you have just talked about. So, is there anyone who would like to just head over to the mic? No? take some time to warm up maybe. So maybe since I have two captive audience with me right now, uh, I would like to start with my own. So uh, I'm a political scientist by training, so I would like to ask something political first, <laughs> if uh, I may. So um, 
we do see that actually uh, the forward SG exercise talks a lot about you know inclusivity, uh, wanting a new social compact. But uh, there's also been mentioned by um, yourself, DPM, and I think a few other ministers that there's no taking for granted that the PAP will continue to win elections going forward. So it's really a consideration of you know what kind of government that forms in the future as well. So in terms of that uh, inclusivity and the in uh, accommodation of diversity in society, how much uh, is there a consideration for political diversity and accommodation of these interests as well? Singaporeans will decide that every election is a free election. I think how much diversity, how much checks and balances, well, that's really for Singaporeans to decide. Uh, ultimately, from my point of view, in government now and Eventually, when elections are, you know, when we have elections, it's for us to present our report card to Singaporeans to show what we have achieved, what we have done in government, and then to let Singaporeans decide whether or not we have done enough, whether we are deserving of their confidence and trust to continue to be to form the government in Singapore, or if they feel that someone else is better and there are other alternatives they, they, they prefer. Uh, that's what democracies are about. So we can't decide what the outcome of that is. We can only do our best in government as a, and as a political party. What we do know is that Singapore, as with all countries, the trends and the desire for more checks and balances, the, uh, the likelihood that there will be more political contestation is real. And so this is true everywhere around the world. It will happen in Singapore too. So there will be more political competition, more political contestation. That's why we have been saying, and this is not new, I've been saying this as well, that uh, we should all recognize that from you know, every election from you know, going forward will not be so straightforward. You cannot assume that it will always be the PAP in government. In fact, every election, every vote will be a vote for who forms the government in Singapore. And every Singaporeans, every voter will have to just consider that, take that seriously, and if you make your choice, because in the end, Singaporeans will have to decide this. Thank you. So, uh, if Singaporeans have to decide, then how important is this uh, political diversity in forming the social compact? And also, um, because we, when we talk about political diversity, it's also about the different voices and different ideas that they have about forming society and government, right? So, uh, in terms of that, um, how does it? How does the PAP, uh, the Forward SG movement, plan to uh, incorporate all these things when trying to forge the social compact? For now, we are not doing a political exercise; we are doing a social, a government exercise. So, we are not talking about engaging political parties, we're talking about engaging Singaporeans. And understandably, Singaporeans have diverse views, there will be diverse opinions, and we welcome that. So amidst this diversity, we take in feedback, we are inclusive, we try to reach out to as many people as possible, regardless of your backgrounds, regardless of your political beliefs, your political ideals, participate in this exercise as a national exercise. This is not a political exercise. It is a national exercise for all of us with an interest in building a better Singapore 
to say, look, let's come together as one country and let's think about how we might want Singapore to be greener, to be fairer, to be more inclusive, to be a better society for ourselves and also for our next generation. That's what this exercise is about. Thank you. Uh, so basically, we will be looking at inclusivity. So uh, in terms of, uh, you mentioned basically uh, greener Singapore as well. So uh, we do see from the news that recently uh, Singapore has decided that you want to, uh, we want to you know, reach carbon neutral status by 2050. So uh, are there any concrete uh, plans in place to do that? And you know, uh, do you think that the issues that have been brought forth by our participants today are actually uh, useful in that plan? We are, we are going out on a consultation now because we had in the budget talked about achieving net zero by around mid-century. So we are talking about net zero by 2050 as a long-term target. And then to say, look, in order to achieve that by net zero, what do we, uh, by net zero by 2050, what specifically should we do over the next 10 to 15 years? In particular, by 2030, for example, how far would we have been able to, what, what would we have achieved by 2030 and then what more can we do subsequently? So any such plan has to recognise where Singapore is today and then what we might do again to balance all the different competing demands for energy security, for example, especially in a world where all of you can see uh, oil prices are already where they are, there is considerable concerns about whether there's sufficient gas in Europe and how this will impact on the global gas market. So all bearing all of that into account and recognizing Singapore's starting point, which is that we have very limited options for renewable power, then what is the possible path towards 2030, 2040, and then before we get to net zero by 2050? Uh, the answer to that, of course, requires solutions on several fronts. One part of it is a group that talked about carbon taxes, which we have already announced. So we have talked about raising carbon tax to $50 to $80 by 2030. That's 2030. So we are quite clear where we want to go with regard to carbon tax. Uh, that will have an impact in terms of um, helping companies or sending the right price signal for companies, enterprises, individuals even, to start thinking about how they might want to adjust their business model, adjust their lifestyles. Uh, the group that presented on carbon tax felt that you know, it might not be fair uh, if the tax is applied on the high emitters, which it is, but then the companies who have to pay that tax pass down the cost of the tax and eventually the impact of the tax will be paid largely by consumers and therefore the concern was will this be a fair transition for everyone and they i think had suggested using some of their tax revenues to do some carbon uh, grants right the broad idea of this is actually what we are already doing because we have already said that when we do a carbon tax it's not revenue generating for the government we are not keeping the money we are taking the money and we are putting it back, offsetting it. How are we using it? We are using the revenues in part to offset consumers 
Because when one of the impact of a carbon tax is it will filter through into higher electricity prices. So consumers pay for higher electricity prices, and we can certainly use part of the carbon tax revenues to offset that impact, particularly for the lower income groups. And in that sense, we can make it fair. The ones with means, they can pay more, they will pay higher electricity prices, but the ones who are lower income, we can largely offset uh, uh, and reduce the, the impact on them. Then another part of the revenue is to be able to use it for carbon mitigation projects for companies or businesses or anyone in society with ideas on new projects that will help them reduce their carbon emissions. So the ones who are prepared to do more, they are prepared to make the extra effort to do these uh, carbon reduction projects for themselves. Well, some of the tax revenues can be used to subsidize, co-fund uh, these projects so that they can also accelerate their own green transition. And then finally, a third part of the revenue will be used for new technologies. Because for us to get from where we are today to net zero in 2050, we cannot just rely on today's technology, but we will need to think about new solutions, including technologies like hydrogen, carbon capture, all of which are still very expensive. If we were to implement something like carbon capture today, it is very, very expensive. And so it's not feasible now, but we hope with R&D, with continued um, scaling up of such solutions overseas, we will be able to eventually see the price come down for hydrogen, for carbon capture and storage. And then eventually, perhaps in 10 years' time, in 15 years' time, we can start introducing some of these technologies for Singapore too. So that's our broad game plan. Right? It's very consistent, in fact, with some of the ideas the group had presented. Uh, but the bottom line is that we are seriously, we are taking it very seriously because that we know that climate change is real and we have to do everything we can to be a responsible stakeholder of the international community and get to net zero ourselves in Singapore. The other point to make on climate change is Despite making our best efforts, we also have to be mentally prepared that the world might not get its act together and climate change can still happen and global warming may well happen. Because even if we do everything we do in Singapore, we are just 0.1% of global emissions. And we certainly cannot dictate what other countries do. We will try our best. We will try to push. We will try to encourage. But if the world doesn't get its act together and you see some worries that this might happen, particularly given the more immediate concerns that people are having now about energy security. And in Europe, they are very concerned. They can't even keep the lights on. And if they can't keep the lights on in, in winter, they are going to burn coal, they're going to burn fossil fuels in place of Russia's natural gas, which is going to be held back. So if this kinds of scenario were to happen and therefore climate change continues to you know, take place, temperatures go up, which it may very well happen, then we have to be prepared for that scenario. And so we are also making plans to adapt to climate change, not just to mitigate, which means preparing for sea levels rising and then doing everything we can to put in investments, infrastructure, 
polder sea walls to protect ourselves. So we are actually doing both a net zero plan as well as a carbon adaptation plan. Thank you. Uh, SMS Janu, I understand you actually once hosted a series on climate change, right? So maybe you would like to weigh in as well. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes the host just says the lines that they provide on the script. Um, <laughs> but yes, uh, I, I don't uh, pretend to be an expert on climate change. Um, it's an important issue and uh, we, we are taking many, many steps to try to deal with some of the challenges that we face. Um, the uncertainty of what ha is going to happen, it's not we're uncertain about what's going to happen in 2030 or 2050. We're uncertain about what's going to happen next year. Uh, so we do need some uh, baking in of that resilience and adaptability. Uh, and one of the reasons why we are in this position to consider different ways to deal with climate change, adaptation, mitigation, resilience, is precisely the depth of resources that we have. And I think it's something to think about when some of our considerations around, for example, uh, what we should be doing with our economy, the extent to which we should be thinking about competitiveness and productivity. Um, if this uncertainty is going to extend far further and further and further into the future, well, 30 years from now, would we want to have the same kind of resource depth that we have today in order then to have a, a variety of options in our pocket about how to deal with climate change? I mean, the short answer would be yes. And so that's just the only additional point that I, that I thought I might make about um, the extent to which economic capability is going to be a very important factor in our ability to deal with cl climate change. I just wanted maybe to circle back to your earlier question, which uh, you said was going to be political. I'm going to make it a political answer, if you don't mind, uh, which is that um, the, the, one of the things that within the political party is a diversity of views. I think the way you framed it was that across political parties, you have diversity. Fair point. People understand that. But I think underappreciated is the extent to which you can have diversity of views within a political party. And I would argue there's no lack of diverse views within the, political, within the PAP. Um, you know, it's the same party that has Louis Ng and Chong Ki Hyong, you know, and, and it has uh, Carrie Tan and, and Liang Eng Hua, you know, I mean, they have very diverse views on any number of subjects. Um, and, and those views are given voice, um, they're carried in the media, debate, but ultimately you have to do something with the diversity. The diversity is good to have, uh, but you have to come to a resolution and find a way to to get a compromise or at least chart a way forward. And I think this is um, the, the other side of the coin when we talk about diversity from a political perspective, which is very, very different from diversity in a social perspective. That ultimately, you can have all the diversity on a social perspective and it's all a net good and you, you have to deal with it. Um, you know, deal with the frictions and it becomes a net good. Diversity within a political perspective, it's good provided you can then come together to chart a way forward. And that was just the one point that I wanted to, to make. Thank you very much for adding on the point. I think it's also about, you know, being reassured that maybe uh, there's no one group think within a major party. But of course, uh, I think we can set the political questions aside for now since it's not a political forum. Uh, and probe a bit deeper on the uh, green climate uh, problem. So uh, the question, the, uh, oh, yes, please. So perhaps we get your question first. Sure. Um, good afternoon, DPM, uh, SMS. Uh, thank you for the insight so far. Um, I'm Garrett. I'm from Singapore Police Force under MHA. Um, I, my question is 
really, I mean, participants here, we are the individual champions in our respective domains. And it's very heartwarming that DPM and SMS is encouraging us to pursue our individual passions beyond these four walls. So, but beyond these four walls, there are also people out there who are equally passionate to see that the status quo remains and to ensure that wherever we are trying to push towards, we don't get there. So my question, I mean, the myriad of issues down here, things like, I think DPM faced uh, the resistance of raising GST. Um, there was also, sometime back, there was also the issue of bending PMDs. Question really is then, when you face these kind of wars out there, what kind of advice would you give to when, when you know, debate gets unpleasant, when you face these kind of wars that you don't think there's a way forward, how do you then deal with this and move forward? There are no easy answers. There's nothing like having to engage the groups. First of all, you need to understand for any issue that you're addressing, how do people feel about this? And one of the groups just now talked about this, how there were different stakeholders. This was in the context of uh, 377A and LGBT. But it's one issue, but it's one example. But I think it's also... Uh, you know, you could use that same stakeholder grouping that you had. There will be the government agencies that are involved in the issue. There will be people who advocate change for one particular, whatever that issue is. There will be those who say no to that change. And then there will be people who are largely in the middle, the so-called silent majority. Right? And sometimes you don't know who you're hearing from. Right? You listen a lot to the yes and the no's, but you don't quite know whether they are representative. Is, it, is, is a silent group really a majority or are they a minority? Who, who is, or the ones that you are picking up from, they may be very loud. And you hear a lot from them, whether it's yes or no, but maybe they are a minority. Are they, are they really representative or are they a minority? So you need to sense-make. You need to sense-make and understand. Where do people stand on something like that? Um, but that's useful from one point of view, but beyond just sense-making and understanding where people stand, what are the diff how do people in society feel on any particular issue, there is another consideration, which is, what do we think is the right thing to do, right? Is, it, is, is this particular change necessary? Having judged the different trade-offs, um, is, for example, moving on GST, even though it's, it may be unpopular, is it necessary and why is it necessary? And, and that's a judgment call. And if the government or any group for that matter feels that that particular move is necessary, is, is, will actually help Singapore and Singaporeans, then notwithstanding the sense-making and the different uh, views, then the responsibility is, responsibility is to engage, persuade, and try and convince people why this move will eventually be a net plus, notwithstanding the critics, notwithstanding the... Uh, naysayers, right? Then, then this is the challenging part because then how do you persuade people uh, to get on the same page? And there 
it's a matter of engagement, it's a matter of understanding the concerns, reaching out to them, talking to them, influencing them, debating on issues which we sometimes do in Parliament or in any other forum, and then hopefully over a period of time convincing people that this is the better path forward. Obviously, on some issues, it's easier to do and it's faster to find consensus and then we can move forward. On other issues, it's harder to do. So it really depends issue by issue. I mean, that's, that's, that, that's not really giving you a magic solution because there is none. Um, but I'm sure in the course of your work, for those of you who are civil servants, you would encounter this many, many times. It's, it's not unusual that you have to think like this, understand, sense make, understand the terrain that you're dealing with, understand the different sentiments that you're dealing with, and then think about the policy itself, how to design it, how to, how to shape that policy, and then try to marry the two together, the sentiments, the, the views of society, as well as the particular policy change that is being com contemplated. Just one point to add, which is that um, um, we, we are blessed to live in a high-trust society, relatively speaking, compared to many other parts of the world. Um, um, people trust each other. Uh, people, largely speaking, trust the government. And the government, in a way, has a confidence that we are a trustworthy people. We, 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 you know, we generally are a cohesive society. And I think that high level of trust makes the next challenge that you face easier to deal with, right? If you're going into a situation where there are different views, but you start from a relatively high baseline trust, I, I think it, it allows a different type of dialogue compared to some of the other countries and cities we look at where there's a low trust um, environment and right off the bat, as soon as the conversation starts, everybody's assuming the worst of every other party in the room. Um, I, I think it sets up a very different conversation. Why are we a high-trust society? I couldn't put my finger on any single um, um, particular magic solution, but I do know that there are many stakeholders who are continually working to shore up that trust, and I think that is important work. It's not always about the high-stakes next shift. I, I think there's a lot of important work of the small, grounded issues day to day to day to day, which shore up trust and cohesion in our society, which then make it possible for us to deal with the diff difficult issues when we need to. Thank you. Thank you, Garrett. Um, good afternoon, DPM SMS. Thank you so much for taking your time to, um, to have these discussions with us. I'm Amelia. I'm from the Energy Market Authority. So um, actually, the points I wanted to discuss were pertaining um, to the first question and broadly linked to um, the second question that was asked as well. So maybe to start off, uh, just wanted to say, hi, DPM. Um, wanted to thank you for the de very bold decisions that you made during your time as former CEO of EMA to invest and build the Singapore Liquid Natural Gas Terminal. So I think it took great amounts of foresight to make these decisions um, for our energy security and our energy future. So for context right now, I think what that has really done is, is empowered us as the engineers, no pun intended, to keep the lights on and the gas flowing in Singapore. So as, as you would be well aware, we are facing a very remarkable turn of the tide in the energy industry. Like what you rightfully pointed out, we, are, um, we have very grand ambitions to transit towards hydrogen, CCUS, many untested new green technologies that are 
um, that we hope to come in fast and furious into um, our energy landscape. So um, I think the question that I have right now is that it seems like Mount Everest, but we know that it's not insurmountable. However, the first steps to take are always the hardest. So in order to start to scale, in order to start to climb to that um, ultimate target of net zero, um, I have a very um, rather, it might be a difficult question, so please pardon me. But as we know, we need to start investing in infrastructure to galvanize our power system and overall infrastructure early. So I think my question is, um, how do we how do we convince people or when do we start and where do we start even to take to take these steps? Because as you know, infrastructure is in notoriously difficult to put into place and it's costly as well. And let's be honest, Jurong Island is no Marina Barrage. It's quite ugly. Lah. So obviously there are all of these considerations that go into broader policy decisions. But I think at our core, we are motivated to ensure energy security such that you wouldn't have to think about switching on a switch and, oh, um, can I charge my laptop? Can I charge my computer? So um, my question is really, um, and this can apply to anything, right? Not just the energy industry. For overall resources, um, how from an organizational level do we build up strong narratives and strong arguments to put forth in order to be convincing so that we can build the future that we want and eventually transit to, in this context, our net zero targets? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Amelia. I, I think some people are wanting to speak. Shall we take more than a, f a few questions at a time so that we can get through all of them? Yes, please. But I think we have to... Uh, okay, we have two mics now because they need to clean it for oh, COVID I purposes. Uh, yes. I... I'm not sure that if we are all masked off as I see in the room, that cleaning a mic makes a lot of difference, frankly. Good afternoon, DPM and SMS. This is Darren from URA. On the issue of inclusivity for LGBTQ Singaporeans, Group 2 here, you would have heard, some of the suggestions were civil unions or greater representation of and you know, neutral or positive portrayals of LGBT Singaporeans on media, uh, in the media. So does the government feel that these are viable next steps in the short term? Or if not, you know, what are some of the next steps uh, in, in the short term, you think? Especially in view of uh, DPM, what you uh, earlier mentioned, uh, that uh, same-sex marriage uh, will not uh, happen on your watch uh, if, if, re in this, if PAP is re-elected in this election, the next election. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, very good afternoon. Uh, I'm OKJ. I'm a documentary storyteller. Uh, thank you both for making time today. Uh, you have a very diverse question because mine is a little bit unrelated to the other two. Uh, my group worked on risk-taking and one of the solutions we had was to uh, really target the formative years in secondary school and to create initiatives around that. But when we came up with those um, policy suggestions, we realised that in secondary school, it is also at near peak capacity because there's already so many things you need to learn, CCAs and so on, that there's simply no time, right? Our, as our ambitions increase, we still only have seven days in a week. Take out school and put in workplaces, you still have the same thing. Time is sorely lacking in terms of our development. But people are just like trees. We need time in order to develop uh, that risk-taking nature um, and find ourselves to do what we want to do. So my question is that how can policies uh, be shaped such that we can free up more time for Singaporeans to develop ourselves to be more of a risk-taker or a productive risk-taker, especially now with the world being more volatile? Mm. Uh, it doesn't cut it to be safe. Thank, Thank you. you. More risk-taking. Thank you.
Yes. Hi. Um, so I'm Louisa from Smart Nation Office um, SingPass team. So my first question is, um, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are about what we presented, what Group 10 presented. So um, which to recap, it's about um, the question was the trade-off between being competitive versus work-life balance. And our answer is, in short, um, you can have both. It's not a trade-off. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. And also because we ended off the last question with, um, do we always need to aim for competitiveness especially um, because of where we are at this stage in society um, and in the world. And my second question is, of all the ideas you heard today, because I'm sure you've heard this, a lot of them before, which are new or which are some of them that interest you now, that now you would want to reconsider? Yeah, mm, thanks. Thank you. Okay, why don't we do a pause here, uh, and then we can... Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, we won't finish. I think I'll take the... Who was it that asked about civil unions and... Uh, Represent. Ah, what's your name again? Darren. Darren. Well, I, we have only just talked about repealing 377A. I think if we had not even mooted that, today's conversation would be about can we repeal 377A? So we haven't even done that yet. It's not a done deal. It has to be discussed in Parliament. And we have to work through that process, debate, and there are very strong views on both sides as you already know. Uh, so I think let's take it one step at a time. Let's not even get to what is the next step before we have not even taken the first step. Let's take the first step first. And that first step is, as we have been trying to explain, we are repealing 377A because we think that there are considerable legal risk of it being struck down if challenged and if if so, it's, no long, it's not just 377A, but even the definition of marriage could be struck down on the grounds that it's unconstitutional. But at the same time, uh, we recognise that there are large segments in S Singapore who care deeply about marriage as defined currently, as well as family and so family norms, as they are today. Uh, and that, when you talk about family norms, we are referring to how the children are brought up what is taught in schools, what is represented in terms of marriage, these groups do care deeply about that. So how do we find that balance with regard to that first step? What we are proposing in the government is to say, let's repeal 377A, but at the same time, take steps to amend the constitution to protect the current definition of marriage from being legally challenged legally, and also to assure the, the segments that are concerned that 377A is the start of change to say, look, there won't be uh, change to marriage, to family and social norms. That's the balance that we think we are able to strike when we present this in Parliament. It's not, it may not happen, but we have to see what goes in, in the parliamentary debate, but we hope that balance will hold and before anticipating, thinking about what future steps we might do, let's get past this first hurdle and, and see how we can get to a stage where um, we find a new balance that the broad majority of Singaporeans will accept and we can get through this debate without further dividing or polarising our society. It's a real concern for us that if we can't even get through this first step, without keeping our society together, don't even talk about next steps. 
right? So I think to, to take this first step while ensuring that people with very strong views on both sides can understand what we are trying to do, find common ground and accept this new balance in our society. Uh, that's, that's, pre, that's our main focus now rather than thinking about future steps. Uh. What can unfold in the future, who knows? I, I, no, one can, no one has a crystal ball. But what I have said is, under my watch, we will not change the current definition of marriage. And that's, under, that's what we have committed to. For the BAP, if we are in government, under my watch, we will not change the current definition of marriage. Um, on the other questions with regard to Amelia and energy and how would you think about investing in infrastructure, how soon, how fast, how much ahead of demand. This is always a judgment. If you were to invest too early, you end up having a white elephant. And then there may be a risk that you are spending a lot of money, but then the technology advances and maybe you're not even getting the latest technology because you whatever you invested in becomes outdated. So you shouldn't go too early. But if you invest too late, uh, then you, know, you may not have it in time because infrastructure takes time. So it's, there's no easy solution to this. What it means, though, is that we need to understand the technology very well. And we need to spend some money, go in, deep dive into the specific technologies, understand what is, how it's evolving, what aspects of the technology are mature, and therefore we, it's okay, you know, we, we could invest in that infrastructure, but what aspects of it are still changing very quickly, and therefore we may not want to put bets yet, we may just want to watch, monitor, look at the signs, look at how it's evolving before we put some bets. And then at some point, of course, you, we may have to put some bets and then you have to make a judgment. We may not always get it right, but if we were to put some investments in those particular technologies, we ought to make sure that it's a very deliberate, thorough decision informed by the best scientific advisors. Uh, it, to take an example, outside of energy, that's exactly what we did for vaccines. right? We didn't... <laughs> no, no. We bought vaccines very early on, and we had a whole range of vaccines to purchase, but we were advised by our scientific advisors, looking at the research very thoroughly, by Moderna, by Pfizer-BioNTech, and then by a little bit of Sinovac, mainly because they felt Sinovac was mature technology and soon to be available. So they wanted to diversify and hedge, don't just put all the eggs on the mRNA basket. But as it turns out, the two mRNA bets turned out to be very good bets. And luckily we got in early and we managed to get the vaccines, um, which we could roll out very quickly, well ahead of many other countries in Asia. So, so that's the process that we have. Uh, it, with LNG terminal, it wasn't so much a new technology per se. LNG is not new at all, but it was a matter of thinking about whether we can build and we, we ought to. We, we knew we needed to diversify away from just having pipe gas from our neighbours 
and we needed an LNG terminal in order to receive liquefied natural gas from anywhere around the world. And good thing we did it, right? Good thing we did it. You know, the salutary lesson here, look at Germany, it does not have a single LNG terminal. It relied entirely on pipe gas. And look where Germany is today, right? It's a lot more vulnerable where energy is concerned. But with our LNG terminal, we have the ability to bring in gas from all around the world. So it's, um, it was an easy decision to make, a relatively easy decision to make. The difficulty when we did it at that time was that the global financial crisis hit Singapore in 2008. There was no demand for energy at that time because the economy was in recession. Um, and therefore, the project became non-viable. But from the government's point of view, we felt that we shouldn't delay any further. Even though there is a recession, if we were to wait for the economy to pick up, that means waiting for a few more years before building the infrastructure. And recognizing the importance of security, we decided important enough for us to go in and fund the project as a national project, and the government will run it. And that's why I ended up doing it when I was in EMA. Now, this same conversation will take place in many other domains. For example, now we are concerned about food security, right? And, and we must be mentally prepared too. There will be food shortages um, in, in different areas. I mean, we've experienced chickens for now, but that's just chicken, fresh chicken. But you could, you could have food shortages in many other aspects next year because there has been a fertilizer shortage this year, uh, the harvest next year is impacted, badly impacted, which means one must expect food shortages to show up in different, in different areas next year. So what do we do? Um, you could say, let's buy everything we can and store everything up, stockpile for famine, right? But it's very expensive, and if the food shortages do not materialize, food goes to waste, you waste a lot of money. Do you want to do it? Then how much do you do? How much stockpiling do you do? How much of a diversification do you do? Because if you diversify, but diversifying means buying, paying potentially a bit more from different countries as opposed to paying only for the cheapest country for food, right? And so you have to pay a bit more. So how much more of a premium do we want to pay for insurance, for food security? Again, it's a judgment call, but as with most things, we drill down, we examine, we understand the risk, what are the likely sources of disruption, how best would we protect ourselves. We can't have insurance for every single food item. It's not possible, right? But if we can find generally food sources for proteins, for carbohydrates, um, we weren't starved, and we will make sure that we weren't starved even in a food crisis. But that, that means Singaporeans must adapt too. Lah. If there is no fresh chicken, frozen chicken is just as good. And it's fine, we will still have chicken, we will still have sources of protein. And if we have that mentality, then we can build in resilience, pay, pay a higher price, but build in resilience into our food supplies. So, so indeed, that same approach, thinking about food, energy, or any other domain, we have to think along similar lines. 
So, uh, Minister, uh, I think it's a good segue into the question on risk taking. Yes, because we you have been calculating risks, right? So yeah, maybe sure. SS Janio should, would like yeah, to should start. Should we uh, allow Janio to take that? The arrow is duly noted, DPM. Um, uh, I I um, I was looking at that question, and um, I, I it was interesting to me because, um, you know, if you're going to now set up a new policy program on risk taking, uh, and ask for some funding. Uh, funding from the Minister for Finance, uh, he will then say, uh, what's your metric? How will you know when we are getting the right amount of risk-taking from Singaporeans uh, downstream? Um, so I understand where you're coming from. There is this uh, stereotype, uh, this trope that's out there. But is it really true? How do you define risk-taking? I mean, is starting up a new business a risk? Must be, surely. And don't we have lots of new businesses started in Singapore by Singaporeans every year? Um, is perhaps going overseas as part of your career? You know, isn't that a leap of faith? You go and work in a new culture, work in a new city, leave your family behind, uh, find your fortune in the world. Isn't that a bit of a risk? And we have 6% of our population as a diaspora. It's quite large, quite a lot of... I mean, you, you go to Silicon Valley, you go to London, you throw a stone. You, well, don't throw a stone, you'll get you know, someone annoyed, but... <laughs> you know, you, you, you can see the Singaporeans that are there. I would say those are people who are taking quite significant risks. Um, uh, you know, is a mid-career switch a significant risk? And I would say definitely, uh, you know, as someone who has done it. Um, but there are many others, and one of the other groups talked about, you know, engineers becoming insurance. Well, maybe there's some good to it because that person has taken a risk doing something different with their life. Um, certainly we have quite a lot. I know um, in the work that I do at GovTech, not everybody who's coming in to work for us has a background in coding and computer science. They come from all kinds of industries. They take a risk to then do another career. So I think, firstly, I would push back a little to consider that maybe we're not doing so badly at risk-taking as a society as a whole. Uh, but perhaps we could prime our young to be a bit more adventurous. That I do agree with. The issue then is whether we should do so through a formal secondary school curriculum time. Um, I think if... Uh, you had an extra couple of hours available in curriculum time in secondary school under a lot of competition for what you fill it up with. Uh, you know, the Minister for Health will say, uh, maybe we should do more PE. Uh, the other part of the Ministry for Health will say, now we've got to do mental health and wellness. Um, uh, someone will be saying we've got to do a lot more uh, coding, for example. Uh, maybe outdoor learning. Uh, thousand and one things that you could free up curriculum time and, and fill it up with. Uh, not necessarily that everybody needs to necessarily do the same thing as let's say, entrepreneurship and risk-taking. But I think these types of things in the school is better taught, not through a specific program, but maybe imbued in the rest of our curriculum. Um, and I think that is probably the way we would maybe want to think about it. How do you think about some of these cultural values or uh, social approaches and make them an intrinsic part of other aspects of the curriculum or other aspects of how we curate experiences for, for young people? Um, and, and I think there is a shift in, um, in what we're doing there. Certainly when I was at MOE a few years ago, one of the things that we were talking about and I know has been implemented is the idea of white space in the, in the curriculum around, especially the social sciences and the social studies, uh, actually allowing the teachers to take a little bit of a risk about how they curate some of these experiences for their, for their students. Um, so that's my general response uh, to that issue of, of risk-taking. I don't necessarily agree that we are as a species, as a society, as a people, entirely risk-averse. I think we have quite a number of people who have, have taken bold steps 
Um, but we do always need to push young people to, to perhaps get out of their comfort zone. And there are a variety of ways in which, uh, in which we could do that. Yeah. Did you want me to do the competitiveness, or were you going to add to that? Well, I want to add on to that and touch on the third question on competitiveness, because in some ways it's related. Um, do we always need to aim for competitiveness is the question. And it, it, there is a suggestion that competitiveness has a certain negative connotation around us on the treadmill, doing the rat race, always comparing ourselves with others to be number one. I, uh, so I understand that concern. I, uh, let me frame it d differently, that I would like to see us pursue excellence. I think that's a more positive way of framing it, if you don't like the word competitiveness. But I would pursue excellence across in any chosen field, in all professions. And this also goes back to one of the points on risk. Because my hypothesis around risk and the idea that Singaporeans are risk-averse and it's the fault of the education system, so goes the allegation, is not, it's more that I think society at large, our mindsets of success tends to be very narrow. And we, perhaps society, perhaps it's parents, perhaps it's all of us, we, we think that successful role models are only these limited few chosen, preferred jobs, preferred professions. And when people think like that, it leads on to, well, in order to get to those preferred jobs, therefore, you must go to a certain university, you must, go, you must take up a certain course in a university, and then to do that, you must choose the right schools and, and so on and so forth, right? And it builds up and then you get caught up in this whole stressful environment that everything must be about this certain path. But if society at large, if all of us can recognize that excellence can be pursued everywhere in any job that you are doing, you can be a physiotherapist, you can be a nurse, you can be a a plumber, you can be an electrician, you can be a mechanic, what, you can be a chef, and in every field, there is excellence to be, you can pursue excellence, you can really be the best out there, right? You can do a, a very good job of what you're doing. And then, of course, we ought to pay better for many of these jobs so that income gaps do not widen. It's not possible to have equal salary for every job. That's not going to be realistic. But if across all, you know, the different professions you choose, you don't need to see such wide gaps of income, um, then hopefully the sense of dignity, pride, respect accorded to people pursuing excellence across all fields will be different from what it is today. And, and there will be a stronger sense, recognition, that we take, you know, we value people for who they are, for what they do in their jobs, and if everyone takes pride in that work, they pursue excellence, they have a good careers, whatever job they are doing, and society values that. That, to me, is worth achieving, is striving for, right? That, to me, is about how we can refresh improve our conception of meritocracy, embrace people across all fields, and keep on encouraging everyone to excel in everything that they do. Because 
that's what life is about. And in, in the process of excelling, in the process of doing better, it doesn't have to be stressful. Because if you have found a calling, you have found something that you like, you like doing, whatever it is, and you're constantly learning, improving, excelling, uh, you should have work-life harmony. You should embrace it. You should find fulfillment. And you should find meaning in pursuing excellence. Then it doesn't need to be a rat race. It doesn't need to be stressful. It doesn't need to be about me comparing with you and parents comparing how their children have been doing because it's all about us being the best version of ourselves. It's not even about excellence, but can we be happy with mediocrity? Like, can we just be happy with what's good enough because it is good enough? So that it's not, um, like, excellence is also something. Do we have to aim for excellence? Why can't we not? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, again, <laughs> it's, it's, it's for, it, every individual has to decide, right? But I'm offering a different, I'm offering, a, a, I suppose, my theory of why, an individual that um, you may find mediocrity uh, something very appealing at the start, but I'm not sure that it will lead to a lot of fulfillment. And I, my hypothesis on that is that mediocrity in what you would like to achieve perhaps is a reflection that you have not found your calling. You have not found your purpose. And, and therefore, you're like, okay, la, why, why, why work so hard for this? Now, that I can understand. But if you have found that purpose that you would like to, in, in your life, life is short, right? We only have so many years on this earth. What do you want to make of your life here? And if you have found that purpose, that passion, I, I put it to you that mediocrity will not give you satisfaction. But instead, you, if, you, you, if you strive to improve, and I'm not, we are not talking about improving and becoming this standard overnight because everyone improves at their own time, at their own pace. Right? But that continuous process of doing better, learning, I think is satisfying. If you do it, if you, if you are applying it to something you like, something you enjoy, something you have passion about, I think it's satisfying, I think it provides fulfillment, and I think it ought to, and hopefully it's something that everyone can embrace, because that should be ultimately our quest for a better life. Can I just add one point, uh, DPM? I understand why you're asking the question, how you're framing it, but I would also caution about the issue of how it impacts around our larger view on social justice. I, I think if you want to sort of take life a little bit easy, well, okay, that's your personal choice. Maybe you've arrived, you've got means, you've got resources. But to then say that this is what everybody else must also do, well, maybe it won't do any harm if the people you're saying it to have means, have resources, they're comfortable. But if you're going to preserve social mobility, and for people who perhaps are not themselves and the, where they would like to be or their families are not so privileged, I think very hard to say you, you'd be happy with the mediocrity you have. Um, and actually, they would want every opportunity to strive and for their children to strive and to excel and to find that purpose and as a result, find that calling and, and that meaning in life. Just wanted to add that extra point. Thank you. So maybe we go on. We have five people <laughs> waiting for questions. Um, 
Okay, good afternoon, um, SMS and DPM. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, my name is Shana. I'm a year four student at Yale and US College. I'm majoring in global affairs. Um, and I really resonated with what you both said earlier regarding how important it is for Singaporeans, especially young people, to have that uh, almost like a sense of idealism and aspiration and to be able to imagine what a better Singapore might look like. Um, DPM, your just most recent answer actually ties into my question. In a society like ours that is so caught up in that red race and hustle culture, there are some concerns um, that I've heard and read being surfaced about whether Singaporeans are becoming more individualistic um, and we are losing kind of that kampung spirit and that desire to gotong royong and work together. Um, and so my question is, um, how do you think, from a policy perspective, can we design and implement policies that would help us to actually build a more empathetic society and also equip Singaporeans with the vocabulary and capacity to conceive of a better future and then work towards it together? Thank you. Thank you. Can we just collate the rest of the questions? Good afternoon, DPM and SMS. I'm Joven from HDB. I come from a public sector background, so sometimes I feel that the government indeed put in a lot of effort for our government initiatives, but there can be a gap between how the public perceive the government initiatives and how the government perceive our own initiatives. So I understand that you are also active on social media, so we'd like to hear your thoughts on how you feel that social media and the online space can help to shape the perception of government initiatives, as well as how social media can help to shape the engagement between government and the people. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hi, good afternoon. Um, the DPM and SMS. So I'm chairing from Singapore Pools. Uh, I'm doing product planning and development there. So um, in correlation to the first question that was posed to you earlier on with regards to the increase in GSD, so businesses in Singapore will go into consideration to either absorb or offset this additional GSD uh, cost onto, uh, sorry, uh, we were actually, businesses would consider to either absorb or offset this additional cost to the consumers. So, um, being in a multi-billion dollar business, right, Singapore Post is looking at tens of millions of dollars with this one additional percent of GSD tax. So, um, at this point of time, we are considering the idea of exploring if we can actually absorb this 1% cost, which means that we are actually absorbing like tens of millions of dollars. So, um, we will also explore like other avenues to replace this loss of revenue. So having said that, right, uh, what are your thoughts on businesses' uh, sustainability uh, impact on the increase in GSD? Because for our industry, it's a bit sensitive. Because if we are, were to look for other avenues to increase the revenue, it means that we could potentially be promoting gambling to a certain extent to increase our revenue. Because of course, we will also look for other um, avenues to reduce operational costs, but it's only a certain extent that we can go forth to. So I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Uh, afternoon, DPM and SMS. I'm Leonard. I'm a pharmacist from Raffles Medical Group. So my, my key questions are just two. Um, one is that on health policy. I know it's not one of the key focuses of this uh, seminar, but I just wanted to know, uh, because health policy has generally and primarily been top-down, uh, would there be any chance in the future that it could be bottom-up? And in what way? And of course, for the next pandemic, it's not a matter of if, but when, and whether there are any key principles that you would opine on that are key considerations for Singapore. So the issue, the first question that Shana brought up was um, about um, becoming more empathetic 
and are we becoming a more individualistic uh, society? Um, I'm not sure that we can jump to the conclusion that we're becoming more individualistic. There was a study by the uh, Pew Research Center, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, looking at attitudes after the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and uh, without summarizing the, the study, but the conclusion I walked away looking at that study was that actually we had become more social as a, as, as a result of going through the pandemic. Uh, an appreciation that we had to do things for other people. There was a question about when you got vaccinated, was it to benefit yourself or to benefit larger society? We ranked top on that. Um, questions about the social cohesion that we have in your country being the factors that help you get through the pandemic, we ranked top on that. Um, so I, I think there, there was uh, a sense of solidarity through COVID-19. I think it strengthened our, our sense of cohesion. Um, I, I would imagine that some of these things in the fullness of time, people will look back and reflect on these things and realize that what we did, a lot of it was possible because we acted in a very pro-social way. Um, some of these attitudes will also shift with age. You know, it's, it's not wrong, you know, if you're in your 20s, you're, you're starting out on your career, you know, what's in it for me, where's my personal path, and so forth. But, well, as your social networks grow and you become appreciative of families, the impacts, you have families of yourself, attitudes shift, and as you, as you get a bit older, you also tend to be a bit more pro-social uh, and, and, and I think mellow uh, a little bit. So I, I think that I am not so down on our trajectory. But it is useful for us to have that vocabulary and to learn those skills of empathy. I, I think a whole lot of uh, ground-up initiatives uh, have been started over the last few years, not just after the pandemic, but even uh, going back before that, to bring people together, to have difficult conversations, to, to imbue them with the, the vocabulary and the skill sets at talking around difficult issues. And I think these are the kinds of things which now, we, we, within grassroots, within some of the uh, government sector, uh, social organizations as well, we've, we've taken them on board and we've uh, reached out using some of these tools. I think the Ford SG conversations will be also a part of this. Um, to have Singaporeans appreciate not just the vocabulary that they need to advocate their cause, but uh, what are the views of other stakeholders uh, who have a, 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 a view on the matter um, and I think we can do more on that. So whether or not we are more individualistic or not, I think we do need to do more around empathy and this building of that vocabulary and the skill set. I'm not sure that we are becoming more individualistic. If, if I may add, uh, I, I just now talked about what I think my, my version of happiness is, right? Finding a passion, thinking about improving and doing better at it and, and enjoying it. I think that gives tremendous satisfaction. I should add a second limb to that equation, which is it's also about having a version of happiness that is other-centered. It's not self-centered. So the first one is self-centered. It's my passion, my goal, and I keep on doing better, whatever it is. You know. But if you add the second part of it, which is think about how your life can contribute to something larger than yourself. I think that also gives fulfillment and satisfaction. And if you combine both, then hopefully that is the formula for happiness. Um, 
people, you know, so a lot of people talk about wanting to be happy, right? Fulfillment, satisfaction, well-being. Um, what, what is it? Is it work-life bad harmony? Is it working less? Is it not getting caught up in the red race? All, all of these. So I, I'm not sure. I really do not think that if you were to stop work, you know, for example, and just say, let's sit back, enjoy life, you will truly, truly find happiness. I really don't, I'm not sure. You may be happy for a few days. I'm not sure that you'll be happy for all your lifetime. Uh, so, and, and, and when you think about well-being and happiness and you start asking yourself, what is it? Why, do some, why are some people happier than others? What is it that, that allows some people to feel that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction? To me, it comes down to those, those two things I talked about. The second part is important because if all of your life is about searching for meaning, it's, it's a self-centered you may not find a great deal of satisfaction there. Um, when I was in Bhutan, they are well known for talking about happiness. I met some friends talking about what, what do they mean by happiness in Bhutan. Uh, a lot of it was about social connectedness with other people and achieving happiness for others, not for yourself. Right? So I think that speaks to the point you made, that if we all embrace that, and I, I have some confidence that Singaporeans do feel that. You saw that in the last two and a half years during the pandemic, where you saw many Singaporeans going out of their way to help others in need, to help dormitory workers, uh, to engage their neighbours, to go out to provide food to people who are stuck at home. So many positive examples. And and you see many of that on a daily, ongoing basis. So I would completely support what SMS Janil said. Let's build up more capabilities, more platforms, more ways in which we can empathize with one another and continue to do good for our fellow citizens. Um, should I do the increase in GST one? That should be up my alley, I suppose. Oh, social media too, okay, all right. And then healthcare, you take the healthcare since you are the doctor. Um, um, GST, increase in GST, how should you do it? Well, business have to do this. Businesses will have to decide whether you want to absorb, whether you want to pass on. But even if you decide to pass on, know this. From the government point of view, we have already planned for offsets for citizens. That's why we are giving out an assurance package with announce what that amount is. We are, you know, we've said that given the inflationary environment, we are reviewing the amount to make sure, or the package, to make sure that the assurance that we have given in the assurance package will remain. So that's something we are doing now. But the bottom line is, we know GST will come around and impact Singaporeans in terms of prices. Precisely because of that, we have given an offset package where more is given to the lower income, but even to the middle income, they will get something. And so for the low income groups, we have said that the increase in GST, whether it's 1% or eventually the next additional percent, will not impact them for at least 10 years. And we are committed to that. And in fact, we have also said for the lowest income groups, the increase in GST will have no impact on their incomes at all, net incomes. 
because we are giving not only a transitionary package, but we have also enhanced the permanent GST vouchers, particularly for the low-income groups. So the increase in GST will not impact low-income Singaporeans. That's the assurance we are making to make sure that when we raise GST, the additional, the burden of that tax, most of it will be borne by the higher income groups and therefore that will give us the revenues we need to do all the things that are necessary in the medium to long term, which includes looking after a growing number of seniors, especially as healthcare costs go up. So the government has taken care of that impact on Singaporeans. What businesses decide, I think there will be a range of factors. You will look at competitiveness, you will look at what others do, and then you will have to decide on your own pricing strategies. Um, so maybe just nice, we can segue into the communications. At social media, yes. so, so social media um, yes, there is a gap. Sometimes we don't communicate things very well, or we can communicate better in the government, we have policies, we try our best. In fact, we are doing better today than we were, say, 15 years ago on social media. Uh, but I think there's still room for improvement. We need to understand the medium better. Um, even on social media, I am learning this. I, I'm not an expert, but I'm learning this, that you, whatever you put on Facebook cannot simply be, you can't apply the same content on Instagram and you can't apply the same content on TikTok. It's almost like learning a new language, right? So in, when, we start, when I started out in politics 2011, I had to learn Facebook. Then they said, oh, Facebook is passé because young people are on Instagram, so I had to learn Instagram. And then now they say everyone is on TikTok, so I'm learning TikTok too. And you realize that the language for each one is different you can't just apply the same content. And I think sometimes we are guilty of that in government. Or we don't adapt our content to the platform. We just put an infographic and then we push it out. <laughs> but not good enough. That's, 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 of course, better than what we used to do and, and we are improving, but we need to know where the audiences are, who the audiences are, uh, what works across the different platforms and then apply uh, our, our thought and apply, apply some effort into adapting content suitable to each platform and perhaps even suitable to different audiences, recognizing that society is much more diverse and people are reading the news across many different platforms. So it's, it's a continuing work in progress. I think we are trying hard to improve, we are doing better, so don't get discouraged. Um, very often the perception gap exists when we are also doing a difficult policy, frankly. Right? If it's a good policy, if I'm giving out CDC vouchers tomorrow, $300, there's no gap. Right? Everyone hoorays and cheers and then it spreads and it go goes out. Everyone is happy. But when I'm doing a more challenging policy where there are pros and cons, where there's a need for explanation, where there's a change that affects some groups but we think that it's necessary for the greater good and how do you explain that greater good, then, then of course that's where very often there is a gap because there will be not only people looking at the news, but there will be groups also out to push their point of view and influencing others in the middle. 
And that's why these, it's, that's why it's hard. It's inherently difficult. And so we should try harder on social media, but we should not also rely only on social media. These sorts of face-to-face -face engagements are very important too. So thank you very much. Maybe just a very quick response to the pandemic question. Oh, I had a whole essay planned, you know. Unfortunately. I, I don't do very well on Twitter. We'll have to do a thesis <laughs> statement then. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, can I just make one point about the social media? I, mean, I say this as someone who has been uh, online long before the word social media was created, uh, back in the days of Usenet. For those of you who are old enough to remember what Usenet was, everyone else give me a blank, blank look. Um, just there was one presentation, which was how to disconnect from social media. I really cheered that uh, because... Uh, uh, several years ago, when I went on holiday, I deleted Facebook and Instagram from my phone, and I had such a great holiday that I made it a habit then, every time I went on holiday, to delete social media from my phone so that I could really enjoy the holiday. The last you don't have to delete, right? No, you no, no. Just no. turn it off. No, no, no. I, I, discipline had to be there. The discipline oh. had to be there. So I, I avoid I, temptation altogether. Right, exactly. Delete. 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 If I could leave the if I could leave the phone at home, it'd be even better. But then, in case DPM needs to get hold, no. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so then, the last holiday that I had, um, I, I I deleted it, and I still haven't reinstalled it yet. So now I access social media uh, on my desktop. I mean, I still have to for work, keep an eye on what everyone is doing and you know how the government campaigns are doing. But uh, I have to say, it's an experiment worth trying. Uh, e even if you can't do it forever, just at least for your holidays, I, I find very useful for your sanity. Okay, I better answer the question I'm actually assigned. Uh, was it Leonard? Uh, yep, who um, asked the question. Um, two, two components. One was about bottom-up health policy. The other one was about the pandemic. Not quite so sure what you mean by bottom-up health policy in the sense that um, there are aspects of health care which are necessarily driven by the professions, the pharmacists, the physiotherapists, the doctors, the nurses, um, and those the government doesn't get involved in. I mean, we, we can't make a decision about which drugs to be using or which stent to be using or how to apply the physiotherapies. Those are all driven by the professions. But as government, we do have to regulate from a perspective of standards and safety, uh, which in a way, the professions cannot, right? We, we should act on behalf of the public to regulate for standards and safety. Uh, there's another set of aspects where really we have to do it centrally, which is around financing. Um, and there, because there's a cost to everyone else in the community, I mean, it's paid out of taxes, uh, resource allocation. Uh, so those aspects, again, have to be top-down. So there are parts of healthcare policy which are necessarily ground up and some which are necessarily central and top-down. One of the shifts that we're making, and we hope to make, uh, Minister Ong, you can talk a little bit about this in terms of population health and the healthier SG strategy. Um, if we are successful in this, we are hoping for more interventions upstream before you become unwell. And that means interventions in the social space, in the community spaces. And I think there, there is an opportunity then for a number of ground-up initiatives because we don't have this settled, right? We don't know what are the best series of solutions there. And we will then learn from the experience of various ground-up initiatives. Uh, your second question about the next pandemic, um, I'd broaden it slightly because many of the things that we used to uh, deal with the COVID-19 uh, were not pandemic-specific. I mean, there are things like NCID, which we built coming out of SARS. There was our laboratory capability, which we've been developing for many years, our hospital capacity. But if you think about, for example, the um, tech platforms that we built many of our solutions on, the supply chain uh, um, efforts that we have, 
um, uh, energy, so many other things which helped us cope with the larger multiple series of crises that were there. They were not pandemic-specific. They were born out of a sense of uh, resilience to crisis, right? I mean, for 57 years, we've been thinking like this, where uh, facilities have to be dual purpose. We need to have extra capacity in whether it's the SAF or the People's Association. You know, schools can be used as community staging areas in, in times of crisis. Community centers can be used for vaccinations, but other types of distribution. So it's not necessarily pandemic specific, but it's that sense of making sure whether it's our water supply, our energy supply, our food supply, whether it's the use of our land, um, the way our economy is still so diversified, you know, as a city-state, 20-24% of our GDP around manufacturing. Each one of these things and many, many more are on the basis that things can go wrong in a way that we don't know how. B better be prepared. Um, and so if you look at uh, what the MTF did um, and the, the whole actions by many, many of the, the agencies around that, it was on the basis of drawing on these resources of resilience and being adaptable, uh, repurposing spaces, repurposing technology, repurposing people. And you're drawing, literally you're drawing soldiers and people from the SAF, NSMEN, becoming contact tracers, right? I mean, that's a uh, most important resource also being used in a very adaptable way. So specific to the pandemic, yes, we'll continue to build up our laboratories, our STEM capability, our public hospitals, um, have links with uh, the international public health community, but that's never going to be enough. It's this much larger sense of national resilience and adaptability that's going to help us face whether it's a pandemic or some other crisis that comes along. And I, and I think we have to always remind ourselves that these are essential to the kind of uh, resolve that we have here in Singapore. Thank you. Can I just build very quickly on that? Um, we are doing a review now of our pandemic response. The pandemic is not over, but we've said that we'll do the first half of the response, which is from the start till August last year, which was about when we continued with a containment approach before we opened up and started to move more towards a living with COVID approach. So we're doing a full review, and there will be lessons, I'm sure, as uh, Dr. Janiel said. We'll look at what we can do to improve. But it's a continuing thing. Because you think about this, right? After SARS, we had contact tracing, and we said we are we, high-quality contract tracing system. We took, quite, we took pride in it. We did it quite well. In fact, Harvard said we were the gold standard. Then, with COVID, we realized not quite the gold standard. Because it was a manual system, it took three days or so to do the contact tracing, by then game over, virus had spread all over. And then we developed uh, an IT solution for it, which is much better. So the point is, it's a continuing process, as Dr. Janiel rightly said. We will learn the lessons and arising from uh, the responses we made, the missteps that took place, uh, the things that could have been done better, I'm sure there will be a good set of lessons from this review around supply chains, around responses. But we also cannot fight the last war. The next pandemic will be different. And who knows whether or not the capabilities we build up will be sufficient. And I'm sure it will catch us by surprise one way or the other, no matter what we do to uh, improve. And therefore, that ability to learn from our missteps to, imp to continually do better, that is very critical uh, in facing 
the next pandemic or any crisis. And the broader point on that is um, we, we should embrace the, these sorts of challenges. Uh. I know it can be stressful. We all don't want crisis to happen. We don't want challenge to happen to our lives. But Singapore itself is born out of adversity. The Singapore story is one of turning adversity into strength. Adversity is our karma. <laughs> adversity should embrace it and, and, and use it as a motivator to make us stronger. And if you have that mindset, it's a growth mindset, I feel. It doesn't have to be... A, it, we don't need to be intimidated. We don't need to feel overwhelmed. We should have a growth mindset that embraces challenge, adversity, and learn from it, learn from mistakes, learn from missteps, learn from difficult times, and keep on improving. Because after all, that, that, that is the Singapore story. And, and hopefully that will, be the, that will be how we ourselves as Singaporeans embrace challenge and use it to keep on doing better throughout our lives as well. Thank you, DPM. I think this is a very good uh, parting shot because anyway, our uh, conference is entitled Uncharted this year. So it's very fitting that we are actually talking about all these issues to do with uncertainty and planning and risk-taking in the future. So, And with that, I would like to thank the two ministers for taking their time out for this session and talking to us about all these wide-ranging issues.